So starting now, um, so Max, uh, it's good to have you on the show and I can't wait to hear your, your stories. Um, you know, we met up on LinkedIn through Ron Craig and, and I met up with Ron Craig through Gary Berman show. So it's kind of like a weird triangle of events. Um, so I'll go ahead and let you introduce yourself, Max, and then uh, give us a little bit of your background and we'll go from there. Sure. So thanks, Mike, one, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, in fact, quite honored. Uh, we were, I believe, on one of the Gary Bergman shows together uh, previously. So it was great to, to get to learn about you then. So uh, I am a uh, cybersecurity, and I know some people hate the word SME, uh, but uh, I really, I should say I'm a security SME, whether it's physical, uh, organizational, personal, personnel. Uh, all things really security is what uh, what 25 almost 30 years of security national security as well um, as well as I know you have that background too and uh, it's I really live eat breathe sleep security in fact working on my PhD in technology and innovation management specializing in cybersecurity so uh, the, if I'm not doing security uh, my other job is I'm a mushroom farmer I find that super interesting. We'll dive into that um, a little bit later. So you do have a, a background in the uh, U.S. Marine Corps as well, right? Yeah, I spent uh, six years in the Marine Corps and two in the Army before that. Uh, I actually joined the Army when I was a junior in high school and went to basic training in between my junior and senior year of high school. That's awesome. What, what was your uh, job in the uh, Marine Corps? Well, I... Uh, it ended up being 0411, which is logistics. I went in to the Marine Corps, supposed to be in avionics, and went to school in Memphis, Tennessee, or Millington to be an avionics technician. Uh, but I like to have a little bit too much fun, more than the Marine Corps wanted me to have. So um, I got turned around and uh, went into the logistics arena. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I was in the Navy for a while, and uh, well, for a good while, actually, 13 total years. Um, but my, my specialty is cryptography. Um, that kind of threw me into what I'm doing now and, and what I did, you know, previously. So you also do this, this mushroom farming, which I find totally, absolutely fascinating. Um, and why don't you explain to the people that, that don't know exactly what you have going on, exactly what you're doing? Because we talked about it briefly about how mushrooms kind of mimic the uh, human neural system um, and, you know, the, the projects that, that you have going on with that. I find it totally fascinating because I'm, I'm really into neurology and, and things like that because of the fact that I have a, a neurodiverse uh, issue. So why don't you dive into that? Sure. So uh, in fact, part of, uh, yeah, there is so one, there we go. Uh, I'm working on uh, putting, I was putting some racks together for the farm just this morning and sent my wife off to the farmer's market with uh, about 30 pounds of mushrooms. So um, <clears throat> we currently are producing uh, just north of 150 pounds of mushrooms a week, getting ready to expand to over 300 pounds a week. And that, that'll be happening in the, in the very near future, but really that's not the long-term goal. Um, so the, uh, I'll leave that hanging for a minute and I'll go back to how and why I got into mushrooms. So uh, it was a little over three years ago, my wife had an event 
and uh, uh, she, I don't want to say lost her marbles, because uh, it, it wasn't schizophrenia. Um, um, I, she doesn't mind if I speak out of turn. She had a stroke. And so I started to do some research on how I can best help her and what I can do to help her through this emotional time. And I, I came across some uh, really amazing research by, done by a gentleman named Paul Stamets. Uh, Paul Stamets is in, uh, the, uh, uh, in British Columbia, uh, as well as he has some facilities down in uh, Washington and even I think Oregon. And Paul was doing a, a DARPA study for about five years on improving uh, the soldier. And that was in many faucets, whether improving the circulatory system, the respiratory system, the neurologic system. And he was able to find that or prove that certain mushrooms enhance all of those to where he was seeing uh, 10 to 20% gains in whether neurologic functions, circulatory functions, respiratory functions. Uh, and they were, it was just amazing to see such results. And so I started to look into it uh, even more and found the Japanese culture uh, in the Eastern medicine has been using mushrooms for thousands of years. And when, what's really amazing is whenever you look at the mycelium, which is what uh, grows or is what you, uh, the basis for growing fruited body mushroom that we all tend to consume. Uh, it's that mycelium, it really, it looks, if you were to slice a human brain and look at all the neurological connections, they look really similar. In fact, they, and they grow a lot in the same way. Uh, and one of those mushrooms that you can enhance or the, and the, the mycelium that, that you can ingest uh, uh, is lion's mane. And lion's mane is the only substance known to humankind that you can ingest that'll help grow brain stem cells. Uh, and so I started giving this to my, uh, my wife after her event. And uh, now to this day, she takes it quite often, but it's really incredible how much it's helped her in her recovery. Uh, and a, a lot of the, the Japanese in their culture sends folks to live out in the woods. And I so happen to live out in the woods. Uh, but it's that living out in the woods or what they call a walk for, in the woods uh, and having that peace and quiet, that serenity, as well as eating right and eating in particular mushrooms really improves the recovery time for people that have had stroke as well as uh, multiple forms of cancer. So the power of mushrooms is absolutely incredible. Uh, and so that's what started me down this path, down this path but that's not the end game. Uh, and so if you've talked to, uh, to Ron, uh, you might've heard a little bit about the end game and I've had the privilege of being published uh, by other uh, authors and researchers. Uh, I am actually looking to make a, mycelium-based satellite and launch it into space. That's really the end goal. And uh, there, there's a lot of things that I need to do between now and then to get me there. But boy, it's an exciting ride. Yeah, that, that, that to me is totally fascinating. So when I was in London, um, I got diagnosed with epilepsy. And so I went to an Eastern medicine doctor 
And, you know, she was great. She was from China. Um, she, you know, went back and forth, got her herbs. She did everything out of the house, totally Eastern medicine. Um, some of it tasted really horrible, but it had such great benefit. Um, there was actually one uh, medicine that she gave me. It was like a ball and you let it dissolve in your mouth. And it's the most bitter tasting, horrible medicine, but it's great. It's fantastic. I mean, it like killed, subsided my, my seizures for a period of time. And then they make a tea. And I think that's probably how a lot of the, the mushrooms, because I know that there was mushrooms in that tea. Um, but there were things like, uh, you know, all kinds of herbs. There's, there was all kinds of, there was even a bark of some special tree that was in this, this medicine. And you boil it and then you drink it and it doesn't taste quite, you know, it's not the type of tea that you would, you know, serve guests or whatever, but it, it opened up, you know, different uh, pathways is what she, what she said. Um, the more, the more you drank and, and the more often it would open up the different pathways through the body uh, for different, uh, for different reasons, whether it be cardiac or whether it be, um, you know, like neurology, there, there was always a special type of tea that you would drink to help those pathways improve. Um, so yeah, like that, that type of medicine really interests me a lot. Um, and I think it's really beneficial. I think that we have gotten away from what true solutions are and kind of patched a patch that's patching a patch with like current, you know, modern day pharmacology. Uh, you take a pill to kill the symptoms of another pill. Uh, it's ridiculous. So with that being said, like the, the, the satellite idea. So I love space for one space totally intrigues me. I'm always watching the Gaia channel and, and checking out, you know, the different uh, deep space uh, theories and stuff like that. Um, but the satellite is really, it, it's a fascinating idea. And I definitely want to see like some more, like when you publish more of it, I would love to, to sit down and have a chat with you about that. Um, which brings me to our next topic is your work with Abile, right? It's, it's, is it, okay. Um, so explain a little bit of your work uh, for Abile and, and what you do for them and, and what the mission is. Sure. So uh, Abile Group is a uh, collection of uh, highly uh, intelligent, smart, uh, innovative people, and they are working to keep this, this country uh, safe, sound, and secure. Uh, predominantly, Abile Group works uh, in the DOD space and the intelligence community. I fortunately work uh, with that group right there. Um, and often you see me walking around wearing my NASA shirts uh, because I, I really do believe in the NASA mission, which uh, also kind of helps for the long term. <clears throat> To, to build that space satellite to get to know the right people. Um, but uh, if you, like they say about many things, if you wanna be a millionaire, you hang around with millionaires. Well, if you wanna to go to space, you hang out with those that wanna to go to space. And so I do have the pleasure of helping Abob Group build out their business. Uh, and currently I am working as a subcontractor to Periton uh, on a, a contract uh, called the SENSE program. It's about 900 uh, plus individuals. Uh, and most of them are engineers. And they brought me on board as the security subject matter expert. So yes, in fact, I am a, an actual SME. And so uh, whenever anyone has any questions, concerns about uh, security uh, and physical security, 
one of my previous uh, lifetime roles, I helped stand up TSA. And I was responsible for launching the security of all the federalized airports in Tennessee, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And that involved uh, working with about 3,400 people and uh, coming together as one in, in standing up security in those airports. So uh, I, I really do look at security through a, a broad lens because even though cybersecurity is, is, I would say, my deep technical experience, but you have data security uh, that cybersecurity would be meaningless if we didn't take care of our data and secure that. And, and really, when you look at security across all forms, it, it's about three things, people, process, and technology. And I, I say it in that order for a reason, because security doesn't work. It's uh, the process is not uh, followed, is not leveraged. The technology is meaningless if people don't practice security and practice that cyber hygiene, security hygiene. Uh, so when I look at security, I, I really look at it as there are 7.8 billion people on this earth and none of them practice security the same. But in the, the cybersecurity or the technical security, that's just some ones, some zeros, and a little bit of hardware. And then there's the process piece. And there's a little bit more to the process than the zeros and ones and the hardware. Uh, but that's getting everybody to sing from that same sheet of music. So whenever I look at security, what, what, what uses most of my time, what takes most of my time, what takes most of my effort, it deals with people. And uh, there's a lot of conversations. And that's one of the reasons why I call myself the cyber farmer. Because what I do, is, it's all about sowing seeds of cybersecurity. Mm. It's, it's putting in those little nuggets uh, and then watering them, uh, giving them the care and feeding that they need, making sure that they're in the right conditions to grow uh, and be bountiful. Uh, so that, that's what, how my farming life and my cyber life come together and, and why I, I, I call myself a cyber farmer. That, that's, that's pretty awesome. I like the theory. Um, also with, with NASA. So I, I have a close tie with NASA, actually. Um, I grew up in a city that was called Space City down in Houston. Mm -hmm. um, literally, the kids who had parents that were astronauts went to my school. Um, all the way from elementary to high school. So, you know, when Challenger um, had the accident, a lot of those kids, I knew some of those kids, like Ellison Onizuka's kids, um, you know, it was a very traumatic uh, event, I think, for everybody. But to see the, the progress that we're making in space, you know, SpaceX putting up, four, uh, I think it was four individuals into space. They're up there right now. Yeah, far orbiting, farther than, you know, Amazon and all those guys, you know, this was actually, what, what they say, 300 miles into space, I think. Um, yeah, they're on the side of the Hubble, as well as the other side of the space station. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, what do you think is the number one cybersecurity concern when it comes to space exploration? Well, there's, there's so many, uh, but... I would go back to the way I look at things. It's really people. Um, the, the people act differently in space. They think differently 
and uh, Chris, uh, uh, oh, I want to say Hedges, but that's not right. Chris Hassenfield, uh, he's the astronaut originally from Canada um, and uh, with, flew some fighter jets uh, in the uh, Air Force, I believe it was, with Navy. Mm -hmm. You probably know that one better than I. But Chris Haddonfield uh, talks about how when when you go into space, your mind changes. Changes. You think completely different. And I, I think that that's really going to be uh, a, an important part of, of security in the future, especially as we look to, to space. Uh, right now, we're in a, a space race uh, mm. between between uh, China and between the U.S. Uh, and there's a lot of challenges there in itself. Uh, so we have these two cultures, uh, uh, of people, and they are in a race to see who gets there first, to see who dominates. And that that's a fear for me. That's a real concern because what happens when one dominates? Well, then the other uh, you know, doesn't get to write history. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other gets suppressed. Um, and whenever you're suppressed, you become a lot like the Taliban. And you become now looking at things through a guerrilla warfare lens. Mm -hmm. And so the way we look at security today and securing space, I don't think it's going to be anything remotely close to like what, the way we're going to secure space in 10 to 20 years from now when it's commercialized and everybody gets out there and everyone has these eye-opening moments, uh, much like now I have a security clearance so I can't do those, uh, those magic mushrooms, but I, I've been told that whenever you uh, take the, those uh, magic mushrooms, you, you, it changes your brain, it rewires things. Mm -hmm. And much uh, can be said in the, the same way when you go to space, it's going to rewire your brain gravity acts differently on your brain or the lack thereof. Mm -hmm. So your neural network, it's going to reprogram itself as we go out into space. And so the hackers today are gonna to be advanced hackers tomorrow uh, because of space as well as we get into artificial intelligence and uh, integrating Neuralink into our heads. We are going to have a completely different way that we look at security in, in 10 to 20 years. Yeah, I was I was really excited and kind of shocked when the military decided to create Space Force. Um, you know, when the Air Force came out with with that kind of like a drone, a space drone, um, you know, an unmanned uh, spaceship. I, th I thought that was pretty ingenious, uh, but it was kind of scary in the same token, because you know, the, I think the first person to mention um, the conflict in space was Ronald Reagan. Uh, and since then, it, it got kind of quiet. And then we actually stopped the space exploration program for a period of time. And then all of a sudden went from that to we need Space Force and we need commercial missions into space and we need to vamp this up pretty quickly. And I don't know what was pushing that, but you know, I'm sure there's tons of theories out there, but it's a really exciting time to be involved in space aeronautics and, and stuff like that. I think that um, with people like uh, Elon Musk coming up with, you know, SpaceX and, and commercial space flight, I think it's really cool. 
but in the same token, to me, like being able to put civilians into space is a great idea, but I think it's such a sacred thing, right? You know, it, I think the select few should be able to go because I, I, I do, I do agree with you. The fact that it does change your view, it rewires your brain, but not only that, but it, it changes your, the way you look at life in general. And, you know, I think that's a special thing that, that we should like make sure that we protect um, in the futures, you know, generation in the future. Um, I've had a chance to talk with some astronauts and, and hear their stories about space. And uh, just hearing them describe what it looked like, what it felt like the first time they went into space was just, I could sit there and listen to them for hours um, because it's something most of us will never get to experience. Um, but hearing them tell the stories and the, the scientific experiments that they conducted while in space was, was fantastic. Um, so you mentioned uh, psilocybin and the magic mushrooms. So interesting story. Um, in my younger years, I tried uh, psilocybin. I'm probably the only human that is immune to psilocybin. Literally, it has zero effect on me whatsoever. Interesting. Yeah, I, I was really wanting to experience that, you know, when I was younger, I wanted to experience that, that, I guess, mind journey, and uh, took a little bit, chewed it up, swallowed it, nothing, uh, took some more, nothing. I mean, it was an unreal amount, and still nothing happened. And I was really disappointed. <laughs> I wonder if the epilepsy had anything to do with that, because, you know, that's a neurological issue that you had going on. And I sounds like there, there could very well be a connection. Yeah, you know, I, I started to think that as well. The only effect that I had from the psilocybin was a stomach ache because I had ate so much. I think I ate over an ounce. Um, it was quite a bit. It was a large amount and no neurological effects, no mind trip, just a stomach ache. So you might be right. Maybe that pathway, maybe that uh, neuro pathway was blocked by the epilepsy or, or the, the tremors that, that constantly are like right under the surface. Um, and maybe that kept me from experience that, you know, that euphoric feeling or whatever, but I, I do, huh? If, if I do decide to go for a second PhD, which I'm actually kind of uh, thinking about, that's actually a great study because I'm not aware of anyone doing a study uh, looking at folks with uh, epilepsy and other neurological ch challenges or diseases mm -hmm. and whether or not magic mushrooms uh, would assist or have no effect so that would be an interesting study i, I would absolutely uh, volunteer for that study too because i'd like to know more about the way my brain functions um i, I have a lot of weird things that go on neurologically you know i have the epilepsy and then um, i'm on the spectrum as well so it, it, there's a lot of things that that i've tried to figure out over the years and experiment with different things and you know still trying to figure it out um so another question, and, and I know you probably get this a lot being affiliated with NASA. So I've watched the Gaia channel. I've watched all these documentaries. I'm a documentary freak. I, I watch documentaries all the time. Um, so life beyond Earth, what's your take? Oh, uh, it's so vast. There's there are more stars than there are grains of sand on the earth. And each star we know has at least one more, more like multiple planets. Just by the sheer numbers, 
you would think that there is some other life form out there. Um, it, 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 granted, the odds of of me, you, Alex, Kim being born were tremendous. In fact, the, the odds of us hitting another lottery like that again um, are probably unlikely. But the odds of another civil civilization are actually smaller than an individual life. So if that's the case, if I was born under these tremendous odds, what's to say that there isn't another form of life when there's smaller odds for that? Uh, so, uh, and I, I'm not necessarily, I think that people probably have seen things. Uh, I'm, I had a, I'll call it an event many, many years ago back in when I lived in Kansas. It's funny how people th see things in Kansas. But I had something come from way up out in space down somewhat close to me and then came alongside me in a parallel fashion, hovered. And by that time, I stopped my Jeep and I had no, to no doors, no top on my Jeep. So I always had a visual sighting on this. And the road was straight for miles. So uh, I could just even drive without even looking and, and watch. And then uh, it hovered and took off straight up in the air. I don't know what I saw. Uh, I, I know I wasn't on anything, uh, but uh, so, uh, when you talk about documentaries, uh, there are documentaries out there that have proven that our reality is not really reality. So what one person sees is not what another person sees. And so I'm not sure what I saw. I saw something and it's embedded in my brain. Uh, so I'm, I'm open to believing that there is a possibility uh, and that maybe we'll one day we'll find out uh, what is hopefully real. Otherwise, we'll continue to live in this simulated reality that we're sharing today. You know, it's very strange you, you mentioned that. So I did a lot of like study, like just as a hobby on the way the mind matrixes uh, different things. So your mind is, is expecting to see one thing. And it may not actually be that thing, but because the mind expects to see that, that's what you see. That's, you know, how it's formed in your mind. Um, and I've also, um, we we're talking about AI with Max Hennemeyer from Dark Trace. And we got into the conversation of um, when are we going to have true AI? And Max brought up a really good point about consciousness and how we can't really have true AI until we actually are able to define what consciousness really is. And I thought that was a really good point. You know, I went off on a rabbit hole trying to look at that and trying to, you know, figure out why that we don't know what is consciousness and what's not. Um, I went to the zoo a couple of weeks ago and there was a little black crested monkey from the Congo and he was just kind of wandering around. I sat down on a ledge and this monkey walks up to me. And we had this full on nonverbal conversation. And you could, when we made eye contact, you could tell there was some level of consciousness there. With some animals, you look at them and you make eye contact and, and it may or may not be there, right? And you look at a fish, there's no, you can tell there's no, 
no consciousness as we know it. Um, but this monkey was so fascinating. Like he would look at my tattoos and he'd look at his arm. He'd look at me and make eye contact. Like, why do you have that? And I don't. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to figure out if we ever are able to figure out what exactly is true consciousness. Um, and I saw another one on Gaia channel just the other day about uh, we, we have black holes. You know, the theory of a black hole is, is pretty prevalent, but I also heard the theory of white holes where energy comes from the center of what would be a black hole and can actually, you can go into, well, the theory is you can go into a white hole and end up being in a different place and point in time based on how the white hole actually works and transfers energy and all that stuff. So space travel, I mean, if I wouldn't want to be the astronaut testing that theory, um, but, you know, they said that, you know, eventually we're going to get to a point where we can test that theory in space. But um, yeah, I mean, just a lot of fascinating theories regarding space because there's so much unknown. Um, and like you said, there's more, more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand. And when you think about that, I mean, that is astronomical. So I, I keep holding to this hope and this belief that, you know, there is life out there beyond us. And I think the, the big, uh, the big supporting factor behind that was, and it made me feel good, was the fact that the Navy released those videos of the, the F-16s chasing these unknown objects that would be there one minute and gone the next. And it's on radar. It's not like it, it's a, air, you know, a commercial pilot you know, saying, hey, I saw something. No, this is actual proof. What, you know, now, whether it's an, an actual, like, unidentified object from some other you know solar system or whatever or if it's technology that that somebody has here on earth that we don't know about i think the second the latter would be the scariest uh thought because if we have that capability here on earth now and nobody knows about it and it gets into the wrong hands we could be in a lot of trouble as a country uh for national security oh absolutely and uh, depending on who you talk to, they will say that we've already made, uh, we've already talked to these alien beings and mm -hmm. would have some of the technology that we have. Um, and why people talk about Area 64, mm -hmm. right? Area uh, 51. Area 51, thank you. Uh, but like you're talking about with the Navy releasing the, the video. And uh, I, I forget the commander's name, but extremely credible individual. And he, he wasn't going out there publicizing it and trying to make money off of it. In fact, he hates to even talk about the event, mm. uh, which makes me even say that there's more credibility there because he, he does talk about it, but, uh, it's not like he's looking to go out to the media because really it's hard to believe the media nowadays. Yeah. But there are, there's, we talked about black holes. Mm -hmm. uh, and for years, my man Einstein there, he, he didn't believe in black holes for like 20, 30 years as a scientist. Mm -hmm. And finally, I forget who it was that proved to him that black holes exist. So if the smartest man on earth at that particular time, and maybe still, uh, 
did not believe in something, but yet was able to change his mind because somebody was able to prove it, the likelihood that there is uh, some type of other being out there, I think can and will be proven someday. Uh, and it, that's just a, a matter of time. And, and it, it's funny that time, it might be part of that equation on mm. how to move through space time and it, it, utilizing that, that, those vital to transport us from uh, one point in space time to another. So uh, there are, there's just so many aspects of, of the future that I'm so interested in. Uh, I, I actually believe I'm going to be able to live and see many of them. Mm-hmm. I tell people I'm going to live to be 300. They're like, what? Get out of here. Well, I have two words for you to, to tell people why I believe that. One is called nanobots and the other is called 3D printers. You know, and 3D printers is something that we're using right now to print human skin. We're creating and we're printing bones that can actually be put into people. And in the near future, we'll be putting in livers and in hearts. We're already doing that in animals. Mm-hmm. And I would think that maybe one day, who knows, we'll even get to the brain. Uh, we got to figure out the brain first. Uh, but nanobots is something that we can put into our blood. It doesn't quite, they're not quite there yet. Mm. But once we can, how many nanobots do we need to to clean our skin or our blood? You're talking about, you can take 1500 nanobots on the tip of a pen. Mm -hmm. And is that all you need is 1500 to clean your skin? And if that's the case, you're you're able to regenerate your blood. So that between regenerating my blood and 3D printers, who's to say that I'm not going to live a very, very long time? I mean, if, if you would have told somebody in the 1800s that someone with a condition like mine, that we would have a device implanted in our chest that would help us keep our heart beating, they would have thought you were crazy. Right. I mean, we've come a long way in, in a very short window of time. And I think, uh, you know, the more that we learn and, and the more that we get computing and, and distributing computing and large, uh, you know, like quantum computers involved in doing some of this research, um, I think the, the chances of getting to a point where we can reach that age is, is not unseeable. Um, you know, I, I was talking to somebody the other day about using AI and some of the large distributed computing centers to look at and help to predict the future strains of the COVID-19. Um, and I, I don't know if they're doing it yet or not, but I thought that would be like a, you know, that'd be a great idea. You know, if you take some of these diseases and run through AI scenarios with the different uh, breakdowns and genetics of the viruses or diseases and have the AI play through it, and get to a point where we can do that and predict where the disease is going to go, it'll save a lot of time. Um, I watched a movie or a documentary called Go, Alpha Go. Yeah. And it, I loved it. It was how Google created that AI player and beat one of the champions of Go. And I don't know if you've ever played Go or not, but it's a very strategic, very in-depth, complex thinking game. It's been around for thousands of years. 
And for Google to sit down and interview some of these people, come up with some equations and beat one of the top champions blew my mind. And, okay. and you could see where it was making strides, right? You could see where it was making predicted, you know, behaviors and moves, which, you know, they expected. But then, then there was a point in time where it went outside of the bounds of what they would expect and made a move that everybody was shocked, but still was able to win the tournament. They, the Google bot actually lost that, that round, but went on to beat the guy, you know, and the guy actually beat the computer a couple of times. And, and it was just, it was, it was exciting to see that level of computing and I guess science come together and take down one of the, the champions. And to be a champion, if anybody knows anything about Go, to be a champion, a world champion in Go, you are one smart cookie. Like there, that's, it's tough. So I think that's really exciting as well, looking at AI and, and bringing AI into different aspects of life too. What, and then in addition to, to Go, they had AlphaGo, which mm -hmm. taught itself the game. Mm -hmm. and go mm -hmm. so the fact that we're have able to have uh machines teach themselves uh, and uh, end up being dominating in, in that area you know, that, that kind of actually takes us back to cybersecurity mm -hmm. that we're now and right now we're in a world where we're we're just starting to see bot versus bot mm -hmm. uh, and so I kind of even have to wonder how secure is my job if there's going to be uh, AI to do the job of cybersecurity in the future. Well, but I, I, I think when, when it comes to AI, and I had the same thought too, I kind of went over it for a couple of days trying to figure out, you know, at what level we're going to need humans when we do get AI complete honed. And my thought is you can't replace the human creativity and the human personalities with AI. I think that is even further off in the future than getting computers to make decisions. Um, because I, I think that's where humans are, are, are unique is we do have that, that, that emotional sense. And sometimes we think with emotion, sometimes we think with creativity and we take risks that, that probably computers wouldn't go outside of certain bounds. Um, so I think we'll always need humans to interact with these AI platforms in order to have it progress and, and, and really give it the human touch. Where I get concerned is when we do get to the point where AI and different systems can take into those emotional thoughts and those emotional decisions and those risk-based decisions and make them their own. And I think at that point, we would have a problem. And I think that we would have to have humans helping to control those AI platforms because I think they could get out of control. Like when you look back at the, the old movie, War Games, right? Epic movie. Yeah, epic movies. Um, and the Whopper actually starts going off and making decisions of its own. And it thinks it's playing a game and it, it really was, but I mean, it really spun up the military and, and you know, caused like a global reaction to what was going on. Um, and I, I see like if, if we don't handle AI correctly, not necessarily, you know, war games happening, but things could go, things could go awry really quick. Um, so I'm really excited about that, but I'm more excited too about, you know, what we're doing with, with 
space and satellites. So you mentioned that your your uh, end goal for you know the mushrooms and, and the mycelium satellite. Um, satellite exploration is really awesome. And I got into ham radio years ago, and you know they have a satellite that, that's up there for us to use as well. Um, but where I get concerned is where you have people like Elon Musk throwing internet service into satellites into space. And as a hacker, I look at that as, wow, if I can grab a satellite that produces internet connectivity, what else can I do with that satellite? How can I weaponize that satellite? So now that we're getting more commercial into space and throwing more satellites up there, there's, we're creating our own threat landscape in space. And uh, so what are your thoughts on that and, and weaponizing satellites and, and the capabilities? So I, I was actually on, uh, we talked about Gary Birdman earlier. I was on a uh, uh, podcast or video cast with Gary Berman and I had the pleasure of speaking with uh, Matt uh, Dish, who is the CEO of Iridium. Mm -hmm. And I, I brought it up that there is uh, a hacker group that, of university students and I want to say, I don't remember off the top of my head if they were out of Cambridge or somewhere exactly here in the U.S. And for some reason, I want to say it was here in the U.S. But uh, these, this group of hackers, their students, were hacking space satellites with $300 worth of equipment. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a really great free thing video on, on that, uh, this particular subject, this search for free think and... Uh, hacking satellites for $300. Uh, so if we're able to hack satellites with less than $300 worth of equipment, that price is only going to decrease as, as time goes on. Mm -hmm. So in, in a matter of 24 months, we'll be able to hack those satellites for $150. Two more, more, two more years after that, we'll be able to hack it for $75. Mm -hmm amount of time where it's going to be five dollars worth of material and you're able to hack these satellites uh, so we really have to be mindful of how we we build in or bake in security and so here's here's a a, a great reason why we have to think like that so when we la launched voyager back in 1977 mm -hmm. NASA never once thought about security. They never spoke about security. It was never a requirement. And, and since then, we've launched many satellites into space. Well, up until not too long ago, those were only engineers. Engineers don't think security. They don't talk security. They have checklists. And nowhere on those checklists that say, hey, we have to have uh, encryption on all of our data streams. We have to have uh, multi-factor authentication. And so because of those engineers not too long ago, they didn't think about security, hacking those systems really can be quite easy to do. Mm -hmm. So as I work with NASA today, I, I remind them often that we're thinking about security and what it's going to look like 25 and 50 years from now, because Voyager was launched in space almost 50 years ago, and it's still active today. 
we still have it operating those systems and we have to protect those systems that nobody thought about protecting back then. Um, and so artificial intelligence, it's one of those things that we're going to absolutely have to leverage to help us modernize and, and secure those antiquated systems of yesterday. Yeah, the, the, the state that cybersecurity is and defense, cyber defense, when it comes to space travel, you know, I go back to the fact that most people think that we're alone up in space, right? So why do you need to protect systems, you know? But if I can reach the ISS with a handheld uh, amateur radio and communicate with the ISS, we have problems because I know that they haven't built the ISS with that same regard as well. So who's to say someone with a decent size antenna can't hit the ISS and disable systems that are emitting RF? Um, because a lot of it, a lot of it is based on RF and positioning. Um, I got the the opportunity to watch the ISS fly over Houston um, during a certain period of time, and they would publish what times that were going to fly over our area. And literally, it was the most amazing thing to look up and see this thing. And, and you can tell it's the ISS; like you can visibly see the structure fly over at a at a speed. I mean, it, it was pretty. It's pretty awesome. Um, but just to have that, that touch with space was pretty cool. But I started thinking about it. I was like, you know, I hack Wi-Fi all the time. And I can communicate with our, the ISS through a very small device that puts off little amounts of energy. And I wonder what other systems I can hit on that craft or on that, that installation. Um, so I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I think that with more people going into space and that space race, I can't help but think that, you know, between us and China, there's going to be a cyber battlefield in space um, to keep each other from making those advancements. You know, I mean, if you look back, the, the Russians, they were pretty, pretty early into space. You know, they, they had the, the, the animal that went into space and, and stuff like that. And we were, you know, shortly behind that period. Um, but we did make a lot of the milestones in space. But back then, we didn't have the cyber war that we have now. And I think that, you know, this space race, we're going to see a lot of sabotage and a lot of uh, going back and forth in space through, through technology. Um, and I think satellites are going to be the biggest target, uh, which brings into mind another uh, topic, too, is that GPS positioning system satellites up in space that, that help ships navigate in maritime uh, so there was a period of time, a couple of years ago, probably, that the Navy actually collided with another ship. And knowing the systems that are on those, those big battleships and, and those, those carriers and stuff like that, and even the, the smaller ships, that doesn't happen. Like, th that is a very, very rare occurrence, if, it, if it's ever happened, other than those, those handful of times. And I can't help but think that somebody got into the GPS positioning satellites and was manipulating coordinates, manipulating the systems themselves. Um, what's your theory on that? Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I believe that can happen. In fact, I, I wrote an article on LinkedIn. Oh, uh, it's been a couple of years now, a few years actually, where I actually talk about that very challenge mm -hmm. uh, and, and with uh, maritime GPS and how 
it's not going to be a challenge as we talked about they're hacking our our satellites for less than three hundred dollars mm. and all they have to do is uh take over the the gps signal that is going to the ship to redirect and they can easily redirect the, the ship so, so I absolutely see that uh, very much as was concerned. And uh, uh, we're gonna have space pirates because they're going to actually be hacking the, the signal and redirecting whether it's the, the goods here on, on terra firma or actually up in the stars. I, that, and that's, that's pretty awesome too. When I, when I think about that new frontier of hacking, um, you know, this may sound really bad, but I would like to be part of that, that pirate crew, you know, that, that frontier group that, that learns how to do these things. And, and, you know, not, not maliciously, but being able to say that I can take a satellite signal and manipulate it would be, I mean, as a hacker, that is like God level, you know, if you can manipulate things in the stars that that is like, you, you can't touch that. So I think that'd be really cool. I'm going to open it up to questions. I know that we have Alex and, and Kim on. Um, if you guys have any questions, fire fire away. Yeah, I hope you're all doing well, guys. Um, I think the question I had, and I actually been thinking about it for the past couple of podcasts, is nobody's talking about quant, uh, quantum computing, um, especially that a lot of companies claiming already to be very close to having one. Some of them, I think, even claimed that they have one, but there was no really proper news about it or evidence. Nonetheless, um, I mean, the possibility of quantum computing and what it presents to the world is obviously beyond our imagination. I don't think so many people still understand. But nonetheless, I think we're talking about a lot of challenges, uh, what current technology presents to us and things like that. But the quantum computing will obviously will kind of open up a new realm. Um, not to just defense, because that brings a lot to defense as well, um, but to a lot of developments and discoveries, um, and obviously AI especially, right? Um, the, mod the modules that it can run. So yeah, I think I, think I just wanted to take both of your opinions on um, quantum computing and what it brings to the table. I'll let you go first, Max. Oh, thanks, Mike. So... If you talk to a quantum physicist, they're going to say that anybody who says that they truly understand quantum technology does not understand quantum technology. That doesn't mean that we can't somewhat uh, comprehend or, or have a, a belief or vision of what that might look like. But to actually understand the power uh, and the, the capability uh, I'm thinking that once we start plugging in with the Neuralink and, and we become symbiont with technology, then we're going to start understanding quantum technology and what that truly means and, and where we're going to go. Yeah, sorry, it was on mute. Um, I absolutely agree with that. The Neuralink project, I think, is is both exciting and scary at the same time um to be able to read one's thoughts based on you know how the brain functions and, and stuff like that I, I i think it's really exciting yeah i thought it was really cool when they came up with the device to implant into uh the the brainstem to help people with massive seizure disorders kill that kill that response 
um, things like that. The, the small advances, I think, are, are going to be really good. Um, and it's going to go really fast. And, I, you know, to be honest with you, I'm trying to, to figure out, and I've traced it back, trying to figure out how we've gone through such technological strides in such a short period of time. Um, that, is, that, that to me is more interesting and more, uh, I guess, researchable than quantum computing, because you're right. If, if anybody says that they understand quantum physics or can even fathom what quantum computing is really gonna be like, they really don't understand. Um, and I go back to, you know, take Searle for, for instance, right? And you look at the way that people have chased the God particle and tried to recreate the Big Bang and, and, and the environmental variables that go with it, trying to recreate, you know, mankind or, or, or how, we, how we came about. Um, not only is it dangerous and can cause, you know, very large mass casualties, but it's also, I mean, do we really want to be able to have that control? Do we want humans to have the ability to create a God particle or that black particle. Um, I think it's a great idea, but it scares me in the same token. Same thing with quantum computing. Do we really want to master that art? Do we really want to get to the point where we can harness that capability? Because, you know, you look at places like North Korea, right? And how apt they are to, to pressing a button and destroying whole civilizations. Um, you know, with, with great power comes great responsibility. And I don't think as a human race, we're to that point where we can harness that type of, that type of power and be responsible with it. Um, we have, we have leaders on earth making really piss poor decisions right now. And they're, and they're very archaic decisions. Like you take Afghanistan, for instance, and, and pulling troops out of Afghanistan and how much of a failure that was, you know, and we're going to put quantum computing and the ability to create the God particle in their hands. I mean, can you imagine if we have a, a tyrannical leader that, that wants to do everybody in and we have that type of power? I just, I, I don't think as humankind yet we're ready for that. Now, the, the situation where I think that it will bring us all together is if we have an outside variable become a threat or become... A, a true variable. Like if there's life outside of earth and we get introduced to that, I think as a civilization, we're going to come together. I think it's going to take an event like that to be able to bring us to that, that responsible level where we can harness the power of, of quantum computing or quantum physics, along with, you know, the type of uh, research that's going on with the God particle. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about uh, our leaders and we have a, uh... A lieutenant Colonel Marine, who is possibly going to lose uh, many things because he has publicly stated about how our leaders aren't taking accountability. And the last thing I want to do is put AI in their hands. Fortunately, we have this thing called the military industrial complex that there is nothing that they don't weaponize. And I, I think it's important that we in the cybersecurity field tap in and become symbionts as quickly and as soon as possible because we as humans have values have ethics and morals that these the computer that ai doesn't have you talked about conscience earlier and if we don't 
become symbiotic with that technology, then uh, it's that artificial intelligence, it's, it's going to rule, it's going to take over because we've programmed it to win and to win at all costs. And they will really won't care about human life. Uh, you know, even though uh, uh, Isaac Asimov has the three rules for robotics, I, I, when it comes to the, to the military industrial complex, that's gonna be thrown out the window. Mm. Uh, in fact, it, I was actually thinking about uh, doing a dissertation or my dissertation on uh, the ethics or artificial intelligence. And it probably became a little bit more of a challenge than, than what I was looking at. Uh, so actually, this is a great time for a plug to, especially many of your audience. Um, so I am doing a dissertation on uh, innovating the hacker. In particular is innovating the hacker for space-based systems. So uh, I would love to, to send a, a survey to anyone who's interested. I'm gonna try to anonymize it. Very good. Uh, and keep things as anonymous as possible. But uh, I, we need to figure out how we can innovate the hacker because it really, it, the hacker can be the most powerful person on earth. We as individuals can, can be, uh, can either make or break this world that we're going to be collectively living in. Uh, all it takes is one person to hack into uh, a space-based satellite that has nukes on it and start, you know, rain some nasty stuff down on this earth. So we, uh, as hackers, need to uh, understand what ethics and values truly mean to us uh, as humans mm -hmm. uh, and understand how how they're going to be probably the most powerful person on earth or powerful being powerful thing. Because once we do become this symbiotic thing and which is not gonna be far away. I mean, they're talking about, you know, we're already looking at 3D printing eyeballs. Uh, we've been put one into a person's skull. They haven't been able to see in over 10 years and now they can see. Well, if they're connected to the internet through their eyeball, uh, you know, that's just one of many things that is going to make us a more advanced, more intelligent, uh, uh, the, the next thing, and I forget what they're calling it. Uh, so homo sapien mm -hmm. will go away much like that of uh, homo, uh, I forget what the other one was, the, the Neanderthal that we, we killed homo, off. Homo erectus. Right. Thank you. Uh, and. <clears throat> That, that next form of humanity, that's coming with this version of, of becoming a symbiotic with technology. Mm. And, and you talked earlier about when is that going to come? Well, I'll give you an idea. Take the last hundred years of, of humanity, mm. okay? And everything that's happened in the last hundred years take all of that technology, technological innovation and crunch it into a 10-year time frame, and that's what's going to happen to us in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. Right, Kim, I, I love Kim's comments. Thank you, because they've been making me smile. But uh, it, Moore's Law is definitely part of it. 
And so if the next 10 years is 100, worth, 100 years worth of technology, what's the next 20? Mm -hmm. And so in 20 years, the world that we know of today is not going to look anything like it does in 2020 mm -hmm. because today's world doesn't look like it did in 1900. When I was a, a little boy, I actually thought about what it would be like to talk to somebody anytime I wanted uh, at, uh, around the world at any given point in time. Mm -hmm. I can do that nowadays with this little device. Well, this little device is really soon going to be right here. Mm -hmm. and, and I really think that that's going to be less than 20 years time frame from right now. And we're going to need to actually do that because uh, Elon Musk has said, artificial intelligence could be like summoning the beast. Mm -hmm. And the only way that we're going to protect ourselves from that beast is to, be, to become one with it. Right. And I totally agree with that. The uh, Neuralink project, I was watching some videos on that and it's pretty amazing. Um, but we, we talked about responsibility and, and power, right? And, and power in the wrong hands. Could, could you imagine if we started AI back in a time of, you know, let's say we hooked Adolf Hitler into Neuralink. Can you imagine the, the, the devastation that would occur? Or if, or if, you know, someone got involved with creating the, uh, the God particle or, you know, took that, hijacked that science, right? And we've seen that, you know, back in during World, World War II, and you looked at some of the technology that the, the, the Nazi uh, Germany, you know, was creating, like the Bellcraft, right? The Bellcraft was an actual hovercraft that actually worked. Um, where they got that technology from slays me. Uh, there was theories that, you know, they had UFOs or, or crash UFOs that they were able to reproduce or whatever. But regardless of where that technology came from, that was above what we have even today. Um, just if you take today and, and look at the advances that they were making back in 1943, and if you take that amount of advance and put it now, it's crazy what we could do. Um, speaking of the internet and body parts connect to the internet, when my heart, when I start feeling a little funky, I have a little device that I hold up to my chest and it communicates through the internet and tells the doctor what, you know, what rhythm I'm in or, or, you know, what the, what the uh, telemetry looks like. And if you would have said 50 years ago, that, that that's what was going to happen to people, they would have thought you were crazy. Absolutely insane. Um, and I think it's going to go even further than that. So there's been studies that, that show that people have the ability, the innate ability built in to be able to do things like see in other places without actually having to be there. You know, remote viewing was an actual project by the army and proved that it, that it, that it worked. Um, I've actually toyed with that, that science a little bit. And, and I was shocked. I was shocked to know that, that what kind of capability you have if you're connected to somebody or connected to an object, like really connected, like you focused and have some sort of, you know, relationship or connection to that person or that object, what you can actually do. And it's true. I mean, I think we're all interconnected. I think life in general is interconnected at some level. Um, and if we can tap into that, that that's huge. That's really big. Um, but I do think it's going to take an outside influence in order to get us all to act as one. Um, I wish it would happen soon because it seems like over time, uh, civilization in general and the mentality is just deteriorating. Um, 
you know, society in general and, and the way people act and, and react and the decisions that are made at a top level, it just seems to get darker and darker. Um, and I think it's going to take one of those outside um, motivations to, to bring it all back. Um, so I was involved in a project, and you've probably heard about it, Project Tularosa, that the Department of Energy put on, Department of Defense, and Sandia National Labs. And I was talking to a retired CIA agent um, this week about the research that I went through. I was a subject in this, in this uh, project. So what they did, you're talking about hackers and technology and, and quantum computing. So what the military and the DOE and Sandia National Labs tried to do was look at the attacker and look at the, bio, the biofeedback and telemetry that they received on their end when we would hack into a system. So they put me behind a SCADA system, hooked me up to a bracelet that looked at perspiration, heart rate, all that stuff, monitored my eye movement, keystrokes, and had me hack into these different machines. And with that, they're trying to create deception technology based on biofeedback. So the government is making steps to understand that connection with technology. And like you said, I don't think it's going to be too far off before they really tap into it. And I just, I hope it's, I hope they're responsible with that data and, and the way that they go about it, because building the ultimate killing machine, I, I don't think is, is going to be the answer to advancement. I think that we need to to be able to create that type of technology, but in a helpful way. Yeah, and boy, you, you're really hitting the nail on the head. When somebody asks me what scares me, what keeps me up at night, it's it's humanity. And we, we now have leaders or people who are supposed to be in leadership positions that, that can't lead or don't lead us. Um, and we have uh, the military-industrial complex that takes uh, over half of the funding uh, that country operates on, and we're not using that funding for peace; we're using it for war. Uh, and we have uh, such a, a, a political uh, uh, war-driven machine that we don't have a, a left and a right anymore. There both one and the same. Exactly. Uh, and so we're, they're both trying to be polarizing and yet they're making uh, everybody kind of hate one another. And when you have all of that hate, it just, it grows mm -hmm. more hate. And if we don't have something that unifies us as humanity, I really think that we're all doomed and it, it scares the crap out of me because we just, constantly promoting uh, right and wrong and that there's never a gray area. And that's why I love hackers because hackers live in that gray area. Mm -hmm. And they, hackers tend to understand uh, even when they do things that are wrong, they're often doing it for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And that's not what our, our leaders do to them. Right. Uh, they're doing it because you know it, it lines their pockets. It, it gives them more power. And hackers, they're not looking or interested at, at really at more power. They're looking at more knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, learning. And, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I love being in the technology field, and, and in particular cybersecurity. The reason why I have all those books back there. Mm -hmm. It's because 
I, I am constantly learning, striving to improve myself, to make myself better. And I wish more people would do that because we now have humanity that their attention span has went from 12 minutes to like two minutes. Mm. And we live on these 30 second sound bites and, and people don't dig in to learn more and figure out what that means. And, and that's again, why I love hackers is because they, they're not necessarily believing the sound bites. They're digging in, they're trying to learn and understand more. Uh, and, and we really need more of that in humanity and people trying to to learn and understand and not just blindly follow. Uh, and uh, I, so I have real hopes for like quantum technology and how that's going to help us. But I also have a lot of fear that people are going to to keep us from getting there. Uh, and, and being successful uh, as as human. Yeah, and, and when you take uh, Nikolai Tesla, for example, in the strides that he was making in advancement and what the FBI did to him to shut him down um, and destroy his records, took his records, you know, things like that. It, it, the, the government really scares me when it comes to innovation and technology, right? So you, you're absolutely 100% correct, I think, when when you talked about there really is, I had the same argument. There really is no Democrat or Republican anymore. They want, they want it to appear as there's, as a division to put people against each other, because we all know that, you know, if you divide, you can conquer, but if everybody comes together, that's a real threat. So it's all one big corporation. They share the money, you know, they make deals with each other. They set themselves up for after they get out of office you know, you see George Bush at, at you know, the wedding of, of Clinton's daughter. You know, you see George Bush and, and his group with Biden at, you know, at the inauguration. It's, it's plain to see that there's connections and they, they have monetary connections and business connections, but they want to polarize the people because they want you to believe there's a division within the government. And the more you fight each other, the weaker the people get. And the money that we spend on defense spending, if we spent that same amount that we spend on defense spending with, let's say, I don't know, technology, we would be at a different place in time. It would be completely different. And, you know, and it's no secret either that when you have a recession and when you're struggling economically in a country, what's the best solution that makes money is war. And that's always been what's pulled us out of a recession or a dark time is some mass conflict um, because that gets the spending going. The, the budget for the defense goes up and companies come together and try to fight this war together. So it, create, it creates jobs, it creates money. Um, and that's just how this country has been driven from the inception of, of you know, 1776 is it's all about conflict. And I think until we can back away from that, and start learning that, you know, hey, there are bigger things to, to conquer rather than a desert environment or, or a group of people that have ill intent. You know, if we stop getting involved in other people's problems and look more towards how we can def defend ourselves, not attack, but defend ourselves and advance technology, we'll be at a much better place. Another thing too, hackers, so when you, when you take the term hackers, and you look at the advancement and innovation in the technological industry, 
really the people who have made the biggest advances are the hackers. And in, in a true sense of the word, um, looking at how to you know, make technology better, how we break it down and take it apart and look at ways we can build advances into that technology. If it weren't for hackers, we wouldn't have the technology we have today. And that's another thing that a lot of governments around the world fear is that capability that hackers have, that, that mindset and that thinking to advance on what's already been created because they want that power. They want the power to be able to control and to be the ones to do the innovation in their mindset, which is not always the best way. Um, so there's a lot of fear and, and stuff like that when it comes to hackers. And really, I, I equate a lot of that to the Salem witch trials. You know, if, if you have that capability, you're on a list somewhere. Um, you know, we were talking about this the other day with Lisa Knight, and I was talking about it yesterday on the podcast with uh, Clint, is that the amount of lists that I'm on is just unreasonable. You know, DHS, OFAC. Um, TSA, you know, I, the TSA list killed me, you know, every time I went, I got the four S's on the boarding pass. And I'm like, okay, you say this is supposed to be random, but it happens to me every single flight. So it's not that random. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's like winning the bad lottery, you know? <laughs> you know, you, you hit the, again, the nail on the head. So Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, mm. talked about how he was successful because he didn't follow the rules. And any CEO that you talk to, they're pretty much going to say the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I encourage hackers, and that's why I another reason why I love hackers, don't follow the rules. You think outside the box. It, it, always question why. And it, it, we, we have to do that if we're going to actually come back together. Because if if we don't, if we if we only follow the rules, the rules are not made for us to be successful. They're not made to bring us together. They're not even they're not even made to make us happy. And we're supposed to have what in the U.S. Uh, life, uh, liberty, and happiness. Which is life, liberty, and happiness. I, I think that that's gone. That's out the window. And the only way that we're going to be able to pursue that life, liberty, and happiness is to question everything, question why, don't follow the masses. In fact, there's a lot of information out there that proves following the masses is the wrong path. Mm. Uh, and so hackers, please keep innovating. And I wanna to talk to you and learn about how and why you're innovating because that's what's going to make us stronger. It's what's gonna make us better. It's what's going to make us live to 300. And I need your help in living the 300. I, I would love to do that. I think Obi-Wan Kenobi was actually somewhere around 300 at one point. Um, so yeah, like th that, that whole idea is, is that's what fuels me is question, 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 question. Um, and that's kind of what turned me against the government at one point was the more questioning I did and the answers I actually got was not what I expected. Um, and I think that we're starting to see a lot more of that, a lot more truth is coming to the surface when it comes to what's really going on. And uh, we're starting to see that, you know, that life, liberty and happiness, those un un unalienable rights are gone. I think what we're left with is life, maybe in some points, um, but even that's questioned at some points with like law enforcement and what they've done um, with brutality. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it is our responsibility to question. It is our responsibility to, when things get out of control, it's our responsibility to take it back. 
Um, and that's kind of where a lot of the hacktivism thoughts and, and theories came from. Um, but even that got skewed because the government got involved. But Max, I really appreciate you being on the show. This has been an absolute pleasure. And I would love to have you on again uh, sometime very soon. And we'll cover some more of the, the topics that, that we see out there in the world. Well, Just send you. us the link for the survey so we can share with people and they can obviously help you with your research. Yeah. Oh, great. Thanks. Yeah, I, I'm not quite there yet. It'll be a couple more months. Uh, but yeah, absolutely, Alex. Uh, and I'm pretty easily reached on LinkedIn. So uh, and for the most part, I connect with almost everybody uh, unless they look like uh, a troll or they just don't post anything. But uh, I, I welcome any connections. Uh, and uh, yeah, we. Uh, I, I have to thank you for giving me this opportunity, Mike. Uh, I, I'm impressed with the people that you've had on your podcast to have my name alongside like Alyssa Knight, uh, Chris Roberts, uh, Jason Street, so many others. They, they, they are people that I look up to uh, as exceptional humans uh, and they all have kind hearts uh, a, a, as well as you, Mike. I think your, your heart is, is so big and, and Thank you for being who you are. Uh, and uh, I'd love to be back on someday. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. You know, like you said, if you want to be a millionaire, surround yourself with millionaires, right? Exactly. So with that being said, I appreciate you guys. And uh, I will see you on the next podcast. And make sure you follow Max Justice on LinkedIn. Um, very great topics today. And I look forward to the next conversation. I'll see you guys then.